The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, investors, authors, creatives, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Do we think that the only things that are valuable are the things that get a lot of eyeballs? Do we think that the only publicly important information is the information that goes viral through networks or has thousands of clicks or tens of thousands of views? A lot of kids will ask their parents questions about the world. As you get older, you want to know why the sky is blue, things like that. I never asked my parents. I instead just kind of went to the internet. More like those who cannot remember the past are condemned to retweet it. History has seen better days. The era of alternative facts, virality, and meme chasing is diminishing attention for real, deeply researched, time-intensive historical scholarship. How do we save the past? for the future. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR.org, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our radio partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio, WERA in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Jason Steinhauer. The book is History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. He is an author, public historian, podcaster, founder of the History Communications Institute, creator of History Club, and a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Sir, do you tap dance and play the piano? I can play the piano, actually. And if you give me a few months, I can learn to tap dance. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? All right. You know, I'm fascinated by this notion in your book, History Disrupted, that there's a whole uh, tension between history, which is time-consuming, it's costly, it's often boring and intensely peer-reviewed, and knowing, you know, having done a history book myself, it's lonely, you spend uh, fruitless days in the catacombs of libraries looking for records that may or may not materialize. A lot is is kind of lost to the vapors of the sky and everything, and that hits up against the demands of immediate gratification of social media and YouTube and the World Wide Web. And that's where we are in 2022. Yeah. Uh, in the book, well, let me take a, a step back for people who are not familiar with the book. So the book tries to answer a question, or at least I set out to answer a question, which was namely, you know, we we have all this content about history that bombards us every day in our social media feeds, whether it's on Twitter or YouTube or elsewhere. And I sort of wanted to know what the sum effect of all this was and why certain content about the past we see and why other content about the past we never see. And the more I looked into it, the more I started to realize that there was really a fundamental collision of values that was happening here between the professional discipline of history, which you sort of summarized, and uh, the values that underpin the social web. And so I make the argument in the book that Putting professional history into the social web is a little bit like putting a square peg into a round hole. And as a result, we oftentimes get history on the web that actually more or less reflects the values of the web itself, but doesn't always really teach us anything about history. You know, I'm struck by uh, this conversation right now as everyone is piling on Joe Rogan and Spotify. For example, you know, if anyone is a podcaster, you know how the technology has changed over the past decade or so, anyone with a MacBook and a decent, you know, USB microphone and access to iTunes or the, uh, you know, the cloud-based system can become a podcaster. And if it becomes viral enough, as it did with Joe Rogan, he's worth something like $100 million to Spotify. And he's getting pilloried now for this dis- disinformation. I know you've covered science as well in parallel to history. The fact that you can create alternative science, that you could bring on guests kind of under the guise of, well, we'd like to accept different points of view. And if that is taken as scientific gospel, a lot of people might unfortunately act on that. Yeah. The, the Listen, the web and the internet have had a great democratizing effect, lowercase d, in terms of who can speak in the public domain. And I think 
there's some positive aspects to that because some of the old gatekeeping models kept a lot of people out and kept a lot of voices out. Uh, and that includes the professional discipline of history, uh, which for a long time was very homogenous and uh, did not have a lot of space for women, people of color. Also, journalism, to be honest, which suffered from the same problem for much of the 20th century, at least mainstream journalism. There's always been a thriving black press mm. that has operated sort of below the surface of mainstream journalism. Right. So uh, I'm not necessarily so alarmed by the ability of more people to speak in the public domain. I think one of the questions I was trying to get at with this book is what are the incentive systems that have been created by this whole media and social media ecosystem? And you mentioned one of them, which I talk about in my book, which is virality. And this notion that if you can somehow figure out a formula to send information viral through networks, you'll get rewarded with fame and money and attention and media and all these other things. And as I talk about in my book on the chapter on the viral past, this doesn't lead to really good history. What it leads to is people figuring out a formula for sending things viral, whether or not they are accurate or not. And so I think one of the outcomes I hope from this book will be that we start to question some of these incentive structures that we've all had a hand in creating and think about maybe we can create better incentives for the next iteration of the web coming down the pike. Maybe we shouldn't be rewarding virality with $100 million contracts. Maybe we should be rewarding accuracy instead. You know, you noticed uh, you noted in the book the rise of Wikipedia in the early aughts. Let me quote, offers a useful starting point in this journey as Wikipedia in many ways laid the foundation for the e-history that would come after it. The most significant contribution of Wikipedia was not a greater understanding of history. Rather, it introduced an important mechanism for e-history to become highly visible on the social web, crowdsourcing. That very concept placed the clash of values between professional history and the social web right at its heart. Flesh that out for me, because there's a certain honor system. I mean, it goes back to eBay back in the day. I think when I looked at the IPO prospectus in my first job out of college, I said, this is kind of faith-based commerce. You're depending on uh, kind of an amorphous peer review for people to keep merchants and buyers honest. And similarly, there are people out there that consider themselves kind of professional Wikipedia nuts. They're constantly peer reviewing and rejecting anything that might smack of commercialism Comment on that, because it's kind of a approaching some sort of academic-like peer review, but it isn't quite academic. Yeah, I have a whole chapter in my book on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is fascinating for a number of different reasons. You mentioned this term e-history. I should probably explain what that is. Yeah. So I make the argument in the book that just like we have e-commerce for commercial transactions that happen online, and we have e-books for digital reading, that we also now have e-history, which is how this exchange or transaction of historical knowledge happens on the web and social media. And I describe e-history in the book as, quote, discrete media products that package an element or elements of the past for consumption on the social web and which try to leverage the social web in order to gain visibility. So the book then tries to lay out some of the ways that e-history becomes visible. And one of those ways is through crowdsourcing. Through So if enough people sort of elevate or rise a historical fact or an element of historical knowledge in the feeds or on a Wikipedia page, it can gain a lot of visibility and traction, not only on Wikipedia, but across the social web, all the places that rely on Wikipedia for information, whether that be Amazon Alexa, Google Voice, Siri, YouTube videos, you name it, they all rely on Wikipedia for information. It's this multiplier effect, this really it's rapid multiplier. multiplier effect. Yep, it's a multiplier effect. So basically, crowdsourcing is one of the ways that information about the past becomes visible on the web. And in the book, I talk about an example where a professional historian tried to edit a Wikipedia entry using his scholarship, but because his scholarship was a singular voice and the crowd and the way the crowd was building that entry did not feel like a singular voice should be able to overrule the sort of accepted wisdom of the crowd. His knowledge about that incident was unable to make it into the Wikipedia entry, even though it was factually accurate. So it's an it's an instance of how this crowdsourcing mechanism can, yes, raise things to our attention that we otherwise may not have seen, but it can also prevent information about the past, accurate information about the past, from ever reaching our eyes. Well, there seems to have been a, kind of an anti-PhD, anti-elite impulse, like a, 
I, I you know, it's you you would think that they would welcome this curation from a paid PhD professional. Well, it goes back to this clash of values that I articulated earlier, right? So this this is why I think understanding this clash of values is so central to our understanding of the social web and what it's done to these sort of expert fields of knowledge, whether it be history or science or any other expert field that tries to communicate its knowledge on the social web. And you're right, Wikipedia does have a very anti-intellectual strand right at its heart. In fact, I talk about in the book how originally there was a a project called Newpedia, which was the predecessor of Wikipedia, and that was based on expert knowledge, peer review. The problem with that, though, is that it wasn't commercially viable. It spent a lot of money to produce only a very few entries. And so the founders of Wikipedia realized that actually if we allow this to be crowdsourced, we can produce many more entries at a faster rate, and that will give it more value and allow it to become a viable product on the social web. And in fact, Wikipedia at its start did envision selling ads. They were wikipedia.com before they were wikipedia.org. So these value systems of being commercially driven, of relying on extrinsic valuations, whether it be clicks or views or shares, those are all deeply embedded within the fabric of the social web that we use. And it really creates a, a series of conflicts with these other value systems that try to operate on the web. And throughout the book, I talk about different moments where those value systems have come into conflict. Full disclosure, you are listening to Jason Steinhauer. He is an author and public historian. The book is History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Uh, Jason, for seven years, worked at the U.S. Library of Congress. He founded the History Club on Clubhouse, which he hosts regularly. It's had more than 100,000 members and averages 2,500 participants per week. I was thinking about that. Uh, when reading the book. That's got to be fascinating because you have such a cross-section of greenhorns and, you know, old uh, uh, board kind of pandemic academics and everybody kind of coming into that mix and potentially being equals on headphones and microphone. Yeah. Clubhouse has been a very interesting experience. And actually, I'm quite bullish on social audio, which is sort of the moniker that these apps such as Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces have been given. I think that one of the things I like about them is that it removes the incentive for virality, which I talked about earlier and which I think is a very bad incentive for a lot of reasons. You know, it's really hard to go, quote unquote, viral on social audio when you're having a conversation with people from around the world for an hour, hour and a half, and you're not pinning links, you're not sharing memes, you're just exchanging ideas via voice. And it's it's a lot harder to, quote-unquote, game the system. It's a lot harder to take a soundbite and post it up on a social network and try to send it virally through networks. You write about this just un- unquenchable desire to get more eyeballs, more users, user acquisition. Users, you write, are essential because nearly all the major Web 2.0 platforms are at heart data-driven commercial enterprises. Platforms such as Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are, for all intents and purposes, advertising businesses. Advertising accounts for 87% of Google's revenue and 98% of Facebook's. You even mentioned, you know, previous to this, even Wikipedia had initial aspirations to sell ads. The platforms harvest enormous amounts of data from users and leveraging algorithms learn over time what features, products, people, and content resonate with them. The algorithms deliver the optimized results as efficiently as possible. I got to tell you uh, that that that's not always super efficient. Yes, they're massive companies. They're worth more than a trillion dollars. But you get a suggestion on Facebook's Instagram, for example, offering you a piece of false history or patently false. You know, the party of Lincoln, you know, the party of Lincoln would stand by these January 6th Capitol rioters and everything. And that I got to tell you, when I see something like that and I think an algorithm fed that to me. I want to get off the platform altogether. I want to go to something that's curated, that has the humanity restored to it. Uh, sometimes algorithms do terrible things in the way of mistakes and misjudge customers in, a, in an awful way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I was researching this book, I spent a lot of time on conservative websites and in conservative media and going down some pretty dark rabbit holes. And it was very fascinating to see what types of ads I started to get on Facebook as well as on Instagram and Twitter, who clearly thought that I was not who I am, that I lived in a different part of the United States, that I had different political leanings. So there are always 
making calculations based on a formula and based on signals that you send. And you can confuse them if you send conflicting signals or you change up your patterns of behavior. But ultimately, I think this is one of the conundrums when it comes to what historians are trying to do or even what journalists and scientists are trying to do on these platforms. Because there is this tantalizing notion that these platforms are beneficial for public reach, for public education. But each time you use them, you're giving more data to these multi-billion dollar or trillion dollar companies for them to exploit. So the question becomes, how much do you want to participate in that ecosystem? And even if you feel like your mission is worthy and what you're doing has merit, are you contributing to a much larger problem that is far more problematic? And I think there are a number of issues that we face in society where you could say that about, you could say that about climate change as well and the way we you know, drive our cars, fly on planes, use electricity, etc. In this instance, even if you have a very good use case for social media, you're still contributing to this commercial enterprise, which is just constantly harvesting your data to make itself more efficient. You know, you run up against the network effects of something like this. This is why that scale and capture of eyeballs is so vital that uh, is it worth it to you? At some point, I think I was in graduate school, everybody said you really should get on Facebook. It's it's the new MySpace. It's better than MySpace and Friendster. And the kind of the worm turned. Everybody went to that. At some point, uh, you know, uh, Instagram was where the center of gravity was and direct messages inside Instagram. And it's very hard for a good player, like a, I don't know, a consortium of, of, of honest, civic-minded historians peer-review-minded historians to come out and make a parallel platform. It might end up being the province of, of, of wonks, but it's always going to be kind of a curiosity for kind of patrons of, of just that. It's not something that's going to scale. It gets back to the inherent argument that you have of, of scale versus quality. Absolutely. And I think these are, these are some of the values that we need to question and rethink. Do we think that the only things that are valuable are the things that get a lot of eyeballs? Do we think that the only publicly important information is the information that goes viral through networks or has thousands of clicks or tens of thousands of views? I personally don't think that's the case. I think that there's plenty of other valuable and important information that people should and, and would want to know about, but it's all trapped right now within this apparatus, which, as you said, privileges extrinsic valuations. How many views, how many clicks, how many shares, how many eyeballs, how much revenue or advertising dollars can be generated from this thing. And until we find ways to build platforms that have different incentive structures built into it, I think we're going to run into the same problems. What do you think about the uh, academic and quasi-academic platforms? I'm thinking of Khan Academy, which does a pretty amazing job for students, especially when they were stuck in the pandemic. But then there are these other viral history things that kind of let you binge on you know, World War II in five minutes. It is what it is, just in the same way Cliff Notes or a Pop-Tart are what they are. Uh, but they're not intended kind of in place of you know three square meals or balanced veggies and protein, right? Yeah, I think the the question behind that question, which is something I try to allude to towards the end of the book, is what does this portend for the future of education? One of the things I talk about in the book is that while you've had this rise in e-history content, you know, millions and millions of channels and and social media platform or social media handles like the ones you just mentioned, you know, five-minute histories, 25-minute histories, YouTube videos, PragerU videos. The same time that is all proliferating, you're also seeing a steady decline in people taking history courses. History is the degree that has plummeted the most out of all degrees awarded in the United States at the undergraduate level. It declined 33% over the course of a decade. Fewer people are taking history courses. Fewer students are enrolling in history courses. Fewer students are majoring in history. Fewer students are actually going to college at all because it's so expensive. As a result, history departments are shrinking. Professors retire and their tenure lines are not replaced. So I think there's a bigger question behind this book, which I try to allude to at the end of the book, which is, is all of this online history actually making the history classroom and the history coursework and the history departments across the United States more and more a endangered species? And I think the answer is unfortunately yes. At least that's the answer that I came to. And I think it's in part because people feel like they can learn all the history that they need from these other sources and they don't have to bother with the classes, they don't have to major, they don't have to pay for professional history when there's so much e-history available for free. Jason Steinhauer, I read that you are 
the grandson of Holocaust survivors. And the family history that passed through is something that deeply informed uh, your work. You were uh, curating exhibits at Lower Manhattan's Museum of Jewish Heritage, uh, a living memorial to the Holocaust. You know, you were part of the team behind ours to fight for American Jews in the Second World War, which was named the best exhibit of the year by the American Association of Museums. I see a lot. I mean, you go on Twitter, it must make you shudder uh, the way Holocaust is thrown around. The revisionism in it that people, for example, compare, at the very least, are comparing, say, vaccine passes, vaccine cards to yellow stars or, you know, throwing it kind of around for, for rhetorical points. And that that is something that gets checked left and right. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg might say something, someone on a very right wing very niche media network might say something. And throughout, we're kind of all being starved of everything that led up to this. I mean, if you read the raw history of the Weimar Republic and populism and the nativism and everything that led to the rise of Hitler, it's far more scary kind of reading into what we have today in the United States. I think a lot of people would rather throw out the shock value and sound bites and actually taking it up historically, introspectively. Yeah, Listen, I am the grandson of Holocaust survivors, as you mentioned, and I take that responsibility very seriously. And I take the responsibility to tell an accurate and honest accounting of the Holocaust as best as I'm able. You know, the the people who are taking uh, yellow stars and putting them on their shirts to march in anti-vaccine marches or anti-lockdown marches... Uh, these people clearly do not know anything about the Holocaust. They've not studied it. They've not read anything about it. They've not watched any survivor testimonies. They've not gone to the Shoah Foundation and looked at their archive. But they don't want to. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is they're trying to score a sport score victories in a political argument. And unfortunately, we see that happening with all different types of history. We see it happening with Black history, with Holocaust history, with Civil War history. What happens in this e-history environment is history becomes memefied. And these memes, whether it be yellow stars or, or other things, become sort of a grab bag, if you will, for appropriation, misappropriation, abuse, and misuse. And they're thrown around casually without any regard for accuracy or rigor or sophistication or even the effect they might have on traumatized communities. So it's very unsettling. It's very appalling. and. Uh, it's part of the challenge that we face in this e-history world. We have a massive media literacy and historical literacy challenge, not just in the United States, but in the, around the world. And if people aren't taking history classes and history departments are closing down, history museums are losing funding, that's only going to make our challenges all the more stark. Mm. Are there some uh, kind of corners of the internet right now that are strongly pushing back against this and winning? <sighs> Well, that's a really good question, to be honest, because, again, even when you're using the Internet on these platforms, you're contributing <laughs> to the point I made earlier. So, listen, I, I do think that there is there are possibilities for Clubhouse. Uh, Clubhouse has a lot of issues. It's not perfect by any means. I've written about some of those issues on my blog, but I do think there's something in social audio that can that can lead to more productive conversations than just shooting memes or clickbait headlines back and forth to each other. Um, you know, when you think about something like Twitter, for example, there has been pushback on Twitter to the point where now journalists and some scientists and even some historians who have blue check marks and large followings, their content does get privileged over shamans and sophistry and other stuff, which is clearly false or outrageous or a factual or a historical. So I think there's been a little bit of progress on Twitter. But again, Twitter is one of these platforms that just by nature of how it's designed, is, is sort of problematic. I also think that now there are a lot of tools out there that people can use to build their own communities off of these major platforms. So that's something I'm very excited about for Web3. If Web3 is done correctly, then perhaps we don't need the Twitters and Facebooks and Wikipedias of the world. We can create our own communities using no-code or low-code tools, and we can create the rules and incentives and values of those communities as we want them to be, and not how these mega billion dollar companies want them to be. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, npr.org, NPR One. 
Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the works at handle Full D Radio. A shout out to our radio partners, WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the good commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and parts of D.C., WPVM down in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. And please message me if you, too, would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to historian Jason Steinhauer. His new book is History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Uh, Jason, comment on the increasing pressure on, uh, if you will, the duopolist, Facebook and Google, to do something about curation. I mean, I, I keep thinking about the the line, human after all. If only you can bring in some curators out there. There must be, especially among uh, people who are fed up about being harvested and algorithmed to death, a desire even among the masses for curated, purer content. Yeah, well, a lot of the a lot of the content moderation that Facebook and Twitter and other sites have done has been very reactive. So something bubbles up in the press or in the public sphere that makes the companies look bad. And so they respond by putting out the immediate fire. And that has kind of worked up until now. It's sort of satisfied the journalists and activists who have an outcry of a particular issue. It satisfies the PR departments of these and communications departments of these companies that they've done something. And it makes Congress happy because it makes them feel like they actually brought the hammer down a little bit on these platforms. Um, you know, to Facebook and Twitter's credit, they have removed a number of problematic foreign accounts uh, from 2018, 2019, and 2020. Obviously, they didn't do it during the 2016 election, which was problematic. But after the fact, once the Mueller report came out, once congressional investigations happened, they did remove a bunch of foreign accounts that were peddling misinformation and disinformation and have continued to remove accounts here and there. So public pressure can work to a certain extent. Uh, but I do think you're right. I do think there's an appetite for a different type of web experience out there. I think there is some fatigue with these social media platforms. I think that's one of the reasons why Facebook is pivoting to Meta. Now, I don't know anybody at Facebook who works on this directly. I don't have any inside sources to share. But my outside read on it is that Facebook is fully aware of the fact that young people are not embracing the Facebook platform. There are young people on Instagram, of course, but Facebook is not gaining a lot of young users. So they're pivoting to meta and the metaverse and they're trying to get into the gaming space because they know that's where young people are. There's a huge gaming community that it can be tapped in. And this is another way for them to increase revenue and sell more ads and also get people onto their products and platforms and services and spend more time there. Um, so I think there is appetite for a different type of social media experience. And it, I think we as users have a lot of power because ultimately these platforms are worthless and meaningless if users are not using them. So there are opportunities for us as users to coalesce and mobilize our power to demand better. And we should try to find opportunities to do that. I will say to underscore, and this gets in a little bit of wonky territory, but uh, the, the executives at Facebook and Meta, they always blanch when you suggest the possibility of a kind of a pure, uncluttered subscription service to Facebook and Instagram, where you aren't being harvested and monetized, where you're the true customer and not the product. And uh, they're like, well, no, we've looked into it. I, you know, I'm like, what if I'm even willing to pay $20, $25 a month? They're not willing to do it because the advertising model, the harvesting model, the algorithms are so valuable to them that uh, they really don't want to consider the counterfactual. Yeah, and honestly, Clubhouse was the same way. There was uh, in Clubhouse's early days, it was an invite-only app, and there were many people on the app at that time when it was a smaller app with a much more curated group of people who told Clubhouse, "Hey, we're willing to pay if you would keep this a curated experience. If you keep this a small network, but there's too much money to be made in." the data that can be harvested from a large group of people and from just having lots of people spending lots of time on your platform. That is the equivalent of gold in today's data and information economy. And again, until we design different incentives, and this starts with the venture capitalists all the way down, 
these patterns are going to continue. So what does a future of the web look like that doesn't rely on this? That is a question I would love to wrestle with over the next few years. Jason, in reading this, I keep thinking about, and you don't want to call history content necessarily, but the likes of Netflix and uh, Hulu and even the New York Times have succeeded in getting people to pay for quality content, HBO Max, right? It was kind of resting the bone from the dog's mouth where all this stuff used to be cross-subsidized for the sake of of advertising, kind of in the heyday of newspapers and, and TV and, and FM radio. Right now, people are willing to pay for an ad-free experience of really high-end content. I mean, you've probably seen some of these history documentaries, these super high-end documentaries that are on HBO Max and, let's say, Netflix. Is there a part of you that's worried that this is kind of being walled off to kind of kind of an elitist pay a lot world? Because I, I mean, PBS does this as a service to everybody else. You can watch the American experience or I don't know how much you consider Ken Burns or Rick Burns legitimate history, but that was always available to anyone with with a bunny ears antenna or basic television. Well, first of all, I loved that baseball documentary series that came out. What yeah, 25, 25, 30 years ago. I mean, I watched that when I was young. I loved it. So I think there's a lot, you know, there is value in those types of experiences. They're not obviously the whole or complete story, but they're a great entry point for people and they are rigorously researched. So I, I appreciate that. And they do interview scholars and experts, which is great. I think there's an open question about how much people are willing to pay and how many subscriptions people are willing to have. And I think that's one of the challenges now that all of media is running into, you may pay for a New York Times subscription, but you're not going to also pay for the Post, the Wall Street Journal, and your local newspaper, and HBO+, Plus, Netflix+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus, NBC+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what that potentially could do is it could just end up rewarding the big players and crowding out the little players. In other words, you're not going to pay for your local newspaper subscription or for your regional newspaper subscription, because you're spending money on your national paper subscription. And indeed, local journalism, as you know, well, has been suffering over the past 10 to 15 years as the national journalistic outlets have bought up different reporters or bought up different podcasts or, or other outlets like The Athletic just being purchased, for example. And it's getting harder and harder for these smaller journalistic outfits to succeed. And so they're actually also being bought up and merged into conglomerates. Some of these conglomerates not having the most altruistic of motivations behind them. So uh, I think the jury's still out on subscriptions and how that will ultimately affect the overall landscape. The New York Times will probably always be okay. The Post will always be okay because of Jeff Bezos. But you know, are the hundreds and thousands of local and regional news outlets going to be okay in that subscription-based model that's not subsidized by cable television or, or some other underwriting package? I don't know the business models well enough to really have a strong opinion on it, but it's one of the questions that I have. Jason Steinhauer, author of History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. In the five minutes or so we have left, close us out. I mean, there is a part of me that is kind of hopeful here. If I really want to walk out with both amateurs and experts on something as narrow and esoteric as money laundering techniques in 1977 Miami before federal money laundering statutes, there are worlds of information out there. I'm sure I could set up a clubhouse channel on that. I'm sure I could reach out to people. It doesn't cost anything to call across the globe anymore or set up uh, some sort of clubhouse or, or or Facebook channel or or Substack or something like that. The barriers to entry are so low, though, that anybody can get in. But there have to be other other shining lights across this that that give you hope for the lot of history as well. Well, I wanted to write an honest book, and I wanted to write a book that took me where the evidence and research was leading. And at the end of the book, I got to a place where I felt like there were some pretty significant headwinds facing both professional history, the discipline of history itself, and also our public understandings of history and how we understand and learn about the past. But the book, I think, is a pretty balanced and fair picture in the sense that there's not one villain in this story. We're all complicit in some ways. We've all had a hand in making this social media environment over the past 20 years. And so 
I think the hope is that because we all had a hand in making it, we can all have a hand in unmaking it. And because we were all part of the design decisions and because we were all part of creating this world, we have a lot of power in creating a different one moving forward. And I think that at this moment, we have a lot of smart people from a lot of different disciplines, whether it be history, journalism, science, even within tech, that are trying to think about new and different ways to do things that don't rely on some of the old incentives that we've seen become very problematic over the past two decades. And so that gives me hope. My hope is always in people and smart, dedicated, caring people who want to make the world a better place. And I think through this book, I've gotten to meet some of them. I hope that by doing these types of things and these types of engagements, I'll meet more of them. And I think that together we do have the tools to make things better for the next 20 years of the web than perhaps the previous 20 years of the web have been. You were listening to Jason Steinhauer, public historian, author, audiophile, global fellow at the Wilson Center. The book is History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Thank you so much for joining us, and please do come back on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, I was talking to historian Jason Steinhauer about his book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. We thought we'd revisit my April 2021 talk with Michael Samen, who joined Facebook at age 17, becoming a reluctant Silicon Valley celebrity. He reflected on the experience in his book, App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. Welcome to the show. I, I'm, I'm so breathless about this because you have so much in your bio. Uh, thank you for joining us finally. No, thank you for having me. I'm uh, really glad to uh, participate in this and, and share what I can. So take me back, please, to uh, we share a hometown of Miami and your parents, you have, you come from a Peruvian Bolivian immigrant family and they had mm -hmm. a restaurant business, do I understand? Yes. Uh, they owned a Peruvian chicken restaurant in Kendall in Miami and it was I mean, it was everything to our family, right? That kind of provided everything for us. We would eat there. That'd be our source of food, our source of income. Uh, and as a kid, you don't really think about that kind of stuff, right? But sure. uh, as we grew up, we started to notice that things maybe weren't a little, you know, weren't all that great as our parents would stay up later and later at night at the restaurant. Uh, they would ask us to try and help out whenever we could. Um, and a lot of it we thought was normal. And only later on in life, you know, did I realize, oh, wait, my parents coming home at three in the morning is not a normal thing for kids to see every day. When we would come back home from school, there was no one to take care of us at home. So uh, my parents would take us to the restaurant and we would sit in the back and they would have us do our homework there. And my dad would look through the security camera that he had in the back of, of the restaurant to make sure that we did our homework. And we would just sit there and we would eat there and we would just kind of wait until they were done with work. And most days it was until closing, right? So we'd basically just be sitting around uh, in the back of the restaurant trying to not, you know, cause any trouble. Michael, would you uh, ever get that kind of the, the immigrant parent hand on shoulders stern talk? I mean, I, I was born in Iran and we came to Miami uh, in the late 70s and my parents had to reinvent and, and no shortage of recollections of my mother pulling me aside and saying, look, we are sacrificing for you and your baby brother. Like, you're going to school. That's what we expect of you. Did you did they did they communicate the expectations on your shoulders? Like you were expected to not just do well in school, but to be self sufficient at some point. Oh yes, a hundred percent. I mean, it, they they came to the United States uh, with a lot of challenges. Uh, my my parents, both of them, having problems, you know, figuring it out with their families and how they might uh, essentially be on their own if they were to go to the United States. My dad basically got cut off from his family when he left. Um, and my mom, you know, to to many degrees as well. So both of them really, since I was a kid would always tell us, although they didn't finish college, or they didn't get a bachelor's degree or anything like that, that they felt it was it was crucial for us to and uh, my mom would always tell me as as things started getting more difficult, my mom would always tell me like, look at how your dad and I are struggling. Look at how we work so long. You don't like seeing us working so many hours, but this is our life. And if you want this life, then you're going to just, you know, don't go to college and, and you'll have it. But if you want to mm. have something better, if you want 
to, to have a life where you don't have to be working until 11 p.m. every day, stressing about the, the restaurant and, and, and making sure that things go well enough to be able to buy the food for the day, um, then you have to go to college. It's the only other way. And they, would, and they would tell us this all the time, which is ironic because I didn't end up going to college. But this is something that <laughs> since I was a kid, uh, I was told and I took very seriously and I was, I was really scared about. You know, my sister maybe took it a little differently, but uh, I certainly was terrified of, of the prospect of, of ending up in a situation like my parents. When did you get your first computer? What was it, a 386, a 486? When did you <laughs> suddenly realize that this is something you could talk to in your introversion, that you could communicate and yeah, express? Yeah, so, so we had like a family Dell computer. I don't know what model it was, but it was definitely beige. So, you know, it was like from that era when that, that, was, the, that was the modern computer at the time. <laughs> uh, and I had a, right. a disc for the uh, Encarta Encyclopedia. Uh, that my parents got me. And so I would use that and I'd go on nickjr.com and, uh, you know, the, all the kids' <laughs> websites where I would try and download things. And oddly enough, my, my favorite thing to do on the computer at that point was um, I would look up worksheets to learn things like math or, or whatnot. And, and I talk about how I didn't like school, but I think I didn't like the social aspect of it because sure. I would spend most of my time at home printing out worksheets from like kids websites to learn how to do school and i would try and like teach my sister stuff uh, and we would do it like we were playing pretend this was like the way i would have fun right. uh, oddly uh, but yes that was that was my entertainment my parents would freak out because they'd run out of printer paper because i kept printing everything uh, but i was fascinated by that so so that was really the start of it all I mean, 20 years later, could you in your wildest dreams imagine kind of seamless Wi-Fi, ubiquitous Wi-Fi and Khan Academy? Uh, you're talking about <laughs> worksheets, worksheets on a dial-up modem, I imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is the the top of the oh, the top of the line at the time, right? I was like, I, I was I was blown away by the power of the internet at that point. And I mean, I would go on the encyclopedia, and then I started to notice that the encyclopedia CD. Uh, wasn't as up-to-date as Wikipedia was as it was coming up at the time. And so I stopped using the CD and my dad would ask <laughs> me like, why aren't you using the CD we bought you? I was like, no, the internet has more up-to-date information. And you know, that was back in the day when the parents would tell you not to trust the internet. Now now it's kind of turned around. Uh, but but that, was, that was certainly the case at the time. So it was interesting because I feel like a lot of kids will ask their parents questions about the world. As you get older, you want to know why the sky is blue, things like that. Uh, I never I never asked my parents. I instead just kind of went to the Internet because, I mean, I would ask my parents at the start and my parents would be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> why do you ask me? That's why we bought you that, you know, that encyclopedia thing. Why don't you use that to look it up? Because I kept asking so many questions. And so I ended up just using the Internet to do that. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I really got my start. T tell me about the first time you realized that there was a mobile economy. There was an iPhone economy. The iPhone, of course, yeah. was launched in 2007, starts to become... Yes. The smartphone writ large becomes ubiquitous over the next four years, whether Android or, yes. or uh, iOS. And how did you familiarize yourself with app design? Yeah, so I, uh, I was always a fan of Apple as a kid. I, I thought it was uh, really inspiring just to see like the branding. I was always obsessed with the entire company um, since I was a kid. And I would watch their events online. Uh, I was a total nerd, uh, obviously. And as the... Uh, I think the iPhone was announced. I was trying to tell my parents about it and how excited I was about the iPhone launch. I would tell my mom in Spanish, I'm like, mira, mira, nuevo iPhone, you know, this is going to change the world, I would tell her. And, and you know, my mom was like, I don't know about that. That just sounds like a, a business phone. My dad would tell me, you don't need that. Like, you know, that's for business people. I'm like, no, no, it has so many things. It has email. It has the web. My dad's like, do you even have an email address? Because I was like 12, right? <laughs> 11, 12. I'm like, yeah, I have an email. I get email. Like, you know, I'm trying to think about that. So I finally convinced all my uncles because I have like 27 million uncles. And I convinced them all uh, for my birthday to give me a small chunk of money that I could add up. Add up all the, the money that I got for my birthday from all my uncles. And I bought myself an iPhone. And from that point, I started thinking about how I could make money off of it. The biggest reason I thought I could make money off of it was because Steve Jobs said it. And I was super gullible, obviously. I I watched the presentation that he did in 2008 uh, following the iPhone launch. And uh, he talked about an app store and how they would allow people to make apps and it would be super easy. And when he said that, I thought, okay, well, if he says it's easy, I, I guess it'll be easy. So I, so I was like, all right, I'm going to make an app. And, and of course, uh, you know, it's not just making any app. 
I decided at that point I needed to make an app that would have an attraction uh, that wouldn't depend on my marketing skills. And at the time, one of the most popular games was Club Penguin, which was recently acquired by Disney at that point. Um, and so I thought it would be a great idea to make a, a reference guide for Club Penguin, somewhat like an encyclopedia of Club Penguin with all the cheats sure. and tricks. And I would charge $2 for it, right? Because back in the day, you could charge money for an app and people would pay. Uh, and so uh, I did that. And uh, after a couple of months, or not even a couple of months, after a couple of days, the app was making like $200, $300 a day. Uh, and I was, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, my my parents didn't believe me either uh, until the money came in. And then I, they thought I did something illegal online. <laughs> so I had to clarify that to them. That was certainly how it started. Uh, joining me is Michael Saman, a self-taught software engineer who joined Facebook at the age of 18. You're now not even 25. You've done tours of duty at Google. You've since joined Roblox. Your book is App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. Michael, I want to explain this famous story of how you you, you realized you were due $5,000 or so once in 2010, and you ran into your parents' bedroom and said, I just made $5,000 on this app. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, the first month, uh, Apple sent out the check, right, for, for the first month they deposited it in the bank account. And so I go over to my mom and say, hey, Apple, just uh, paid. Check the bank account. Check the bank account. It should be in there. Uh, because I promised my mom I would pay back $100 that the developer license cost when uh, I asked her to do it. And she told me, all right, well, if you don't pay us back, you're going to have to wash the dishes in the restaurant to make up that money because we don't have any of it. Um, and I said, all right, but I'll pay you back. And, and so I told her, look, 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 the money came in after the first month. My mom's like, all right, I'll check. OK. And she checks her account and there's like 5000 and something dollars in there. And she's like, Michael, what did you do? <laughs> like very <laughs> concerned, right? Like uh, at that point, I was like, I told you, you know, this is what we were going to make. I, I was making this money. And I was, what, 13 years old at the time. So she was like, OK, uh, what, what about this app? Can you tell me more about this? And at that point, she started really trying to understand what was going on to make sure we weren't in trouble or anything. But I think it was a couple of weeks after that that uh, CNN found out and I started doing interviews on TV and then all of South America found out about it and my family back in Peru and the whole thing blew up and I became this like app kid uh, where people started, you know, following me around in school uh, for interviews and they started filming documentaries and it just became a, like it became a whole thing. It, it turned my life upside down and in many ways it was good, but in other ways uh, it, it wasn't. It, it really wasn't all that great. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Michael Saman, a Miami product, self-taught software engineer who famously joined Facebook at the age of, what was it, 17? 17, yeah. So tell us about the job interview and the first day and getting flown out with mom to this billionaire, this, this, <laughs> the, one of the most covered people in all of American business. What the heck was that like? <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It, it didn't feel real. Uh, for the most part, I, I mean, flying out there, my mom was frustrated uh, the whole time because she kept telling me as a kid that when I was going out into the real world, I would have to learn how to do my dishes. I would have to learn how to do my laundry. I would have to do all these things. And here they were giving us a tour of this Disney World-like campus where they give us the food, they do our laundry for us, they they pay for our transportation, and they give us basically everything we ever wanted. And my mom's just like, what the hell? This isn't fair. <laughs> you know, now, now you're going to go out there and you're going to get everything you wanted. Um, and, and so really it was, I mean, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I, I think the, the most remarkable thing for me was just how regular Mark looked. He just looked like he wasn't a billionaire, if that makes any sense. Like, I just, I just, I guess I didn't really know what a billionaire looked like. I, I just knew he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so the entire time I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, he is a billionaire. How does all that money fit in him? Like, I was like, is he going to explode? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. It was it was really grandiose, but it was also kind of uh, kind of uh, the opposite of what I expected. You know, there's an there's an element of kind of Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory here. You're there with your mother looking at 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 the Facebook Plex. Yes. Very know, amazing much. Om omelet chefs and you have your choice of oat milk, almond milk, everything at the coffee machine. But how <laughs> much of this was I mean, I can imagine on the flight there you're 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 saying to mom, look, I understand I'm supposed to go to college. I'm understanding that's our way of social mobility and that's the social contract in the United States and why you and dad work so hard. But 
this is a guy who went to Harvard and dropped out of Harvard and similarly yeah. Bill Gates Bill Gates dropped out. Michael Dell dropped out of what was the yeah. University of Texas in his dorm room. And you are you trying to tell your mom on the way there, and especially yes. when you're there, Mama, maybe there's another way. Yes, yes. Uh I I mean, my mom was worried uh from I think earlier in the year when I told her my plan, which was to make this free app that then would get the attention of companies and then those companies would reach out to me and maybe I would get hired or it would get acquired and then I wouldn't have to go to college. Because I remember at the time I would go to my college counselor at my school and my college counselor would tell me, your grades are just not there. You have D's and F's and you have really bad grades in your classes. You're just not going to get in. And I remember applying to those schools and getting rejected to every Ivy League school I applied to. I got rejected to everything. And I remember telling my mom, like, look, it's either this or community college, the local community college by uh, by Kendall. Um, so, you know, I, as soon as I got the email from from Facebook, I told my mom, I was like, look, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. This is this is it. Like, I, I'm good. Uh, and she would tell me, are you sure, Michael? Are you sure? And and I was like, no, 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 this is this is it. You'll see. And as we start touring the, the campus and everything, I think my, it starts settling into my mom. When she sees that, right? When I when I go into the, you know, the fishbowl is what they call the meeting room that Zuckerberg uh, would meet in. And when I was sitting there with him and my mom would see through the glass window, I guess she was just kind of standing outside for the 15, 20 minutes or so that we were meeting. And I think at that point she started to realize, okay, like, yeah, maybe he's going to be okay. <laughs> like, maybe it's going to be fine. <laughs> Full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR.org, NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us. A warm hello to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio. WERA in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Please contact me if you'd like full disclosure on your air. I guarantee quick contactless delivery weekly. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.